Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Tuesday, October the 7th, 2014. Now, in this podcast, we're going to present five interviews which are going to close out our coverage from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. So this is the fifth of five installments from that series, and we are joined by five researchers, including Dr. Cedric Sueur, Dr. Odile Petit, Dr. Nicolas Cledier, Dr. Jorg Massen, and finally, Dr. Joshua Plotnik. In the podcast, during the interviews, we're going to cover topics mainly revolving around uh, sociality, so including social behavior, social cognition, the emergence of uh, copying behavior of individuals within social groups and within species. Uh, And in the final interview with Dr. Joshua Plotnik, we move from primates to elephants and find out his work, find out about his work into social cognition in elephants and what that might mean for conservation. So before we get into our interviews in this podcast, uh, I'm joined right now in the studio by Cecile Saravia, one of the students of PRI, future students of PRI, and also one of our volunteers for the podcast at IPS. So welcome to the Primate Cast. Thank you. So Cecile was not here during the recording of the first installment of this podcast series where we had the other students, Yana, Lucy, uh, and Sairi. So we wanted to give her a chance to come on the show and talk about her experiences at IPS. But the reason you were not there was because you were off traveling uh, through Asia. Yeah. <laughs> partly. And, and, and partly um, for the Primate Cast itself uh, and, your, and yourself. You, you went to a conference, a student conference in conservation. Can you just briefly mention that, uh, what the conference was? Yeah, so after after Vietnam, I had, I had some some trip in Indonesia, and then I got in India. And in India, I traveled to Bangalore for the student conference on conservation science. And that that's SCCS happen um, all around the, the the globe. You have one in Bangalore, one per year in Bangalore, one in Cambridge, one in Australia, and uh, one in New York. One in Beijing as well. And so I, w- I was there with lots of um, Indian conservationists, but also Asian and some African conservationists. And it was my first SCCS as well. And it was it was very nice. So let's see um, the podcast that will come out. Yeah. So we'll be talking about that not so much today, but in probably the next podcast that comes out will be your coverage of yeah, this SCCS exactly. conference. Yeah. So that was really great. And uh, it was interesting to see the, the response we got from the organizers to, to help set that up. Yeah, it was very nice. They were very helpful. And I had also a team of um, podcast recorders, volunteers with me. And they were, yeah, they were wonderful. Okay, so we'll get to that uh, in the next podcast. But going back to IPS now. So this yes. was also your first IPS Congress, wasn't it? Yeah, it was my first IPS. It was in Hanoi, Vietnam. I also, it was at the end of um, a travel trip. It was a great um, way to end up um, my travel in Vietnam. I had the opportunity to present a poster there mm-hmm. on my master research. Mm-hmm. On, um, so the title of the poster was Hygienic Behaviors and Feces Revolution in Koshima Macaques. And Koshima, as you may know, is a small island south of Japan where most of the work in Japanese primatology began. And yeah, it was a very nice way to, to be able to share and interact with uh, other scientists. Yeah, so we have a, our very first podcast interview with Professor Masuzawa was talking about the the origin of Japanese primatology and how it started at Koshima. And so we work there together. You, you first came uh, and joined our, pro- our project there, the Koshima Macaque Project, and kind of started your own thing. So this is 
kind of in a way related to the overall project, which is interested in behavior and uh, infectious, well, parasitism in, in Japanese mechanics. Yeah. And so specifically, you became interested in this idea of hygiene. Yeah. So g- just give us a brief background of where that came from. Yeah, well, the overall idea um, began when I observed the Japanese macaques um, performing some food processing behaviors. Uh, first with um, Mimizu. Mimizu is the Japanese earthworm. And um, it's, it occurs most of the year um, in Koshima. So the worms come out and then the macaques are just fan of them. They, they love to eat them. But before eating them, they have some food processing behaviors like uh, rubbing, rolling, stretching. Well, I, I won't, you have to read my future article <laughs> about that. But, um, so I, I got very interested and I, I, I wanted to know the purpose of it. And if eventually it could be related to, to hygiene. And then I got interested in the evolutionary origins of human hygiene. Right, and so you, you, you incorporated this observational study of how macaques manipulate and possibly process food before eating it, but then you also added this experimental component. And so that's where this idea of feces revulsion comes in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I set up an experiment <clears throat> involving fresh uh, macaque feces. Uh, on the beach and a piece of plastic notebook as a control and a fake plastic thesis that was very popular during the IPS. <laughs> and stolen. So popular that, yeah, someone <laughs> took it out from my poster. <laughs> but um, so anyway, and there was some food reward on each of those three items. The MacX has uh, an amount of time to, if, to, to do the experiment. And in the first condition, it was wheat. And in the second condition, it was peanut. But the, the general idea is that um, so they were always fitting on the piece of plastic notebook that was the, the control, but they were avoiding the fresh feces and the fake plastic feces in the wheat condition. Uh, when the reward uh, gets higher nutritive value for the peanuts, then, then they will feed on all the items. So what is interesting for this wheat condition seems to be the, the visual cue that they seem to be also reversed by the fake plastic feces, uh, though it has probably a more similar smell of the piece of plastic notebook. So that was mm-hmm. an interesting result. Mm-hmm. And so you show a great video um, in your presentation. Also during the poster, you had the iPad as part of the poster yes. um, of one of the young females of our study group who yeah. is really hesitant. You can see in the video really hesitating about, should I eat this piece of wheat from the fresh feces or should I not? And she actually spends quite a bit of time thinking yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. apparently thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, it, it looked like, and, and what is very funny is also the, the, the movements that she, she did with her hands. Like she was just looking, every time she was looking at a fresh feces, and she was like right. rubbing, right. <laughs> rubbing it's her kind hands. Kind of some displacement behavior. So, so yeah. And so, what was the response uh, to your poster? You had a, a lot of people come by. Yeah, and talk lots about of it. yeah, lots of people interested in. Well, lots of people attracted by the iPad and this interactive uh, fake plastic feces. And <laughs> so I got lots of business cards, uh, lots of contacts. Um, yeah, and I just, I just also realized that it made me possible to conduct like further work on this on different macex species and so that that's mm-hmm. interesting for the future pers- perspectives okay so we hope to talk to you more about that in the future but just uh, briefly to wrap this up um, can you give us your your impressions of the conference and then your role as one of the interviewers for the primate cast yeah so i did um 
most of the interviews for the podcast 27. Mm -hmm. um, Miles Rudruff um, was there, Augustin Basabose, Debbie Cox, and Tatiana Hamler. And that were basically the people I wanted to talk to. Mm -hmm. So it was, yeah, it was nice to to be able to do it through the podcast and then and then to share it um, with you. Um, but the old conference, yeah, it's just so you have so many, so many people uh, that you you just read their articles or you, you just heard their names and yeah, you would like to talk to them. So you have to you have to create opportunities for that. And but that that, that was nice as a first IPS. It, it, it was great. And uh, yeah, I hope to to go to the next ones as well. The uh, 26 con 2016 conference in Chicago. I think the podcast is a go. So yeah. We can uh, work together th again then. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thanks for joining us here, Cecile. Yeah, thank you. And uh, the next podcast, uh, pay attention, will be Cecile's work from the SCCS conference in Bangalore, India. Exactly. Stay tuned. So now it's time to move on to the interview segment of this podcast. And we're first going to be joined by Dr. Cedric Sueur. He's associate professor at the University of Strasbourg and part of the French National Center for Scientific Research, the CNRS, specifically their Pluridisciplinary Institute of Hubert Curienne, the IPHC. Cedric is also fellow at the University of Strasbourg's prestigious Institute of Advanced Studies program. And in general, he's published a lot on the idea of social networks in primate societies, um, their role in, uh, in mediating the trade-offs um, between social living and individual needs, meeting individual needs in primate and various other animal societies. And Cedric is also a good friend of mine, so we've been working together for a number of years. And what he's going to be talking about, what he came to Hanoi to talk about at the IPS meetings, is a recent study he and also myself and various other um, co-authors have been putting together on network efficiency in primate social groups. And so in the first segment of the interview, this is what you're going to hear him speak about. I am working on social network and specifically I, I try to understand how this, this network in animals can be efficient. Uh, so the question is what, what is an efficient social network? Uh, efficiency is defined as uh, the best uh, information transmission in terms of accuracy and speed in, uh, with the minimum, num minimum number of connections. Uh, we can find this kind of efficient social network, not social network, but just network in genes, protein. But I think the best uh, example for, social, for uh, optimal or efficient network uh, is a transport network. Because in transport network like uh, tramway, subway, uh, you need to uh, connect two stations uh, very quickly, but with the minimum of railway because railway are, are costly. Now we we know that there, there is several networks with uh, at several level uh, in the organism, but also at the group level. And the question is uh, how animal interacts uh, when they live in groups. Uh, when you live in groups, you have some advantages, some inconveniences, and uh, animals have to, to deal with this. So they interact to, to maintain the group cohesion, uh, and these interactions are often uh, heterogeneous. So you have some individual uh, having more relationship than over one, some individual being central in the, in the network, and uh, you, you have a specific social network per group. And the question is, 
uh, is if this specific social network uh, can be selected somewhere uh, to increase uh, the, the fitness of each individual in the group, in the same way or not. So for me, Cedric just illustrated very clearly um, what I think is one of the, the, the clearest advantages of taking a network approach and applying it to animal societies, and that is that we can extract um, these structures, these networks, and then compare them, not even necessarily to other biological networks, but the example he gave there just a minute ago was transportation networks and how they're continually being improved to maximize efficiency. So it's really interesting here that you can then take this idea of efficiency and turn it back into uh, a way to examine animal societies. And so in the next segment of the clip, Cedric's going to tell us exactly how he went about doing that. So we know that, that in uh, a social insects, uh, this uh, efficient social network exists because it's uh, uh, different kinds of reproduction and it's a sociality. But the question if it's we can apply this social network efficiency in primates. So we decided to make a meta-analysis on 78 groups of primates uh, different species with 24 species and we have different uh, independent variables group size, neocortex ratio, sex ratio and we measure different social network measure uh, two kinds of measure about uh, efficiency uh, and after we measure the centralization index so it's uh, how one of few individuals are central in the network it's very close to the dominant style of a, of a species and we have also the modularity of the network is uh, how the network, uh, the group is clustered in different subgroup uh, and we talk in this uh, way about uh, cohesive groups, for instance. So the inclusion of over 70 groups of primates is pretty substantial in this study. And I think that one of the things about primatology uh, and primatologists is that we're often interested in uh, social behaviors. One of the most salient features of primates are their uh, engagement in social behaviors, almost ubiquitously, almost. Uh, and so, so those kinds of data sets exist for so many different species. So it's nice to be able to tap into those um, and ask some different questions about what those relationships mean. So Cedric goes on here to talk about some of the results uh, of this meta-analysis. So what we find, uh, the first result is about the link between efficiency and group size. Uh, the higher the group size, uh, the lower the efficiency meaning that uh, when you live in an important group, uh, you have a low probability to uh, acquire an information or to see social learning, for instance. And the second result is the link between centralization, modularity, and efficiency. Uh, you have a positive link between centralization and modularity. So the, the more a group is clustered, uh, the higher is also uh, centralized. And what we can see is that efficiency is decreasing uh, with the centralization index and with the, um, the modularity. So when you have uh, high centralized network, meaning that you have one or um, two individuals who are very uh, central in this network, uh, you have a lower probability to see the information transmitted in this kind of network. In the same way when you have some subgroup, there is a low probability. And the more interesting result is about uh, the link between the neocortex ratio and efficiency. 
uh, of social network, we have a positive link, meaning that small species, so in showing a higher neocortex ratio, show uh, high efficient uh, social network. So I just want to follow Cedric up here with a couple of examples, um, many taken from his own his own work. But just to get a sense of what this actually means um, in nature, this idea of centralization. One of the classic examples now, dichotomous examples, is within macaques. So you have a lot of different species that have basically the same uh, um, uh, social organization. So multi-male, multi-female social groups, but the structure within those groups is quite different. So take a species like a Japanese macaque or rhesus macaque that has really clear and linear dominance hierarchies where the high-ranking individuals obviously outrank all of the others. Um, these groups have a high degree of centralization as well because those really high-ranking individuals are also the most influential within the group. So they make maybe decisions on collective movements, uh, where the groups are supposed to go, and these kind of things. So high degree of centralization um, in these strictly hierarchical societies. Whereas another species um, from Cedric's work, the Tonkian macaque, which is uh, endemic to the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia, they don't have this uh, same kind of really clear dominance hierarchy, and so not the same kind of degree of centralization. Uh, so the influence that individuals exert are not necessarily dependent on where they fit within the hierarchy, um, maybe more uh, in the way that they interact with other individuals. And so apparently these latter societies are more efficient. And this got me thinking about something else I listened to recently, another podcast series that I'm a big fan of, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. They recently put out an episode where they had an interview from TAM, The Amazing Meeting, with Daniel Dennett, um, who most of you should know. And uh, in that interview, Dr. Dennett was talking about networks, neural networks specifically in the brain, and how information is processed and uh, results in behavior. And if you look at so this central, centralized networks could be exemplified by the structures of corporations where you have um, obviously hierarchies within those corporations. You have president, CEO going down, middle management, and this kind of stuff. And then within the brain, so the neural circuitry doesn't really have that kind of hierarchical system. And so when efficiency is an extremely important part of the network, you may not expect to see high degrees of hierarchical organization or this kind of centralization. And so I think it fits really well in with the, the study that Cedric is just presenting to us. But just to finish off the interview, we asked Cedric to leave us with the bigger picture of this work. So this is very interesting because uh, this result link uh, the individual level, level and the group level. And it means that we, we have some uh, evolutionary process somewhere uh, to select the, the social network. So uh, we think that the selection of the, the selection of the social network or, or, or of uh, it, it, its efficiency uh, is not met at the group level, but well at the individual level through natural selection, so the genotypes, or through the cultural selection uh, through social learning, for instance. And through ge- we 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 should have a combination between natural selection and cultural selection uh, increasing. Uh, over generation, the efficiency of social network. So that was Dr. Cedric Sua of the University of Strasbourg telling us about his work into network efficiency in primate social groups. 
Now in our next interview, we're actually going to be joined by another researcher at the University of Strasbourg, who was actually Cedric's graduate advisor there, um, Dr. Odile Petit. So she is director of research um, at the university there, as well affiliated with the National Center for Scientific Research in the IPHC, uh, as is Cedric. And so that lab in general has had a strong focus on social networks, their role in emergence of leadership. And so Dr. Petit's research and what she's going to be talking about in this interview focuses more on leadership and what qualities allow individuals to become leaders within their respective social groups. I'm interested in collective movement and in fact in leadership. And in that field of leadership, we uh, studied many species and uh, with colleagues as well. And what we found is that uh, nobody can be a good leader then you you can be followed or you can just give up because you are never followed and uh, we try to rely that uh, um, good initiator to to their intrinsic characteristic and to their social characteristic you know if you are a dominant animal then logically you are followed or uh, if you have a lot of friends, if you are central, if you're in your social network of relationships, then you have probably uh, more chance to be followed. And uh, very recently, uh, we saw that uh, animals that are quite bold are more prone to leave the group, but they are more followers as well. Then the idea now in my project is... Uh, to continue to study why some leaders are better than over to be followed, but I'm very frustrated that by this idea to, to study uh, separately the different characteristics, because I consider that an animal is just the, the combination of all these characteristics. And then uh, it was in my brain for four years now to try to put, uh, to integrate all these variables together to... Um, reflect the social credibility one animal can have in a group. And the social credibility, in fact, is uh, expressing itself in the trust that the overgroup members have in that animal. In fact, if you follow an animal, you need to trust it. And the idea is just if you, have a viol- uh, if you are very well followed, then animals trust you and then you have a very high social credibility index. Now, towards the beginning of that segment, uh, Dr. Petit mentioned that nobody can be a good leader. I think the point she was making was not just anybody can become a good leader. Some can initiate and not be followed. Some can initiate and be followed quite well by other individuals. And so the whole point of this work is to try and figure out what goes into making some individuals good leaders. I think this is something that we can all appreciate, um, even in our own societies, what exact qualities go into you know making good leaders. And sure, people have good ideas about what they think um, those qualities are, uh, but it might not be so clear when we just look at a group of monkeys. So in this respect, Dr. Petit has tried to come up with something that she just called, at the end of that segment, the social credibility index. And so she's going to go on in this interview, in the next segment, telling us more about what that means. These parameters are mainly social parameters, you know. They are not uh, age or weight and so on, because this interesting characteristic could, of course, participate to your credibility, but they are less social. And uh, we did that and we correlate that index uh, to the 
leadership success, then in fact the number of followers, but as well the number of time you try to initiate a collective moment and it works <laughs> and it works for macaques for the moment and uh, this result comes from uh, spontaneous observation now perhaps the next step will be to really uh, investigate the relationship between the two index between the leadership success and that social credibility index um, by trying to um, Measure the social credibility index in one animal and after that compare its effect on group members with another animals with another social credibility index. Then uh, now for that you need an experimental group, you need a stable group and you need to have a part of your work on spontaneous observation. After that a lot of analysis and after that go back to the field and try to do the experiment and uh, my dream will be to do that with primers, of course, but with primers that you can bring them by the end and say, okay, come on, I will show you something. <laughs> and the other one, I will show you something else and then try to see when they will want to back, uh, to go back to, to, the, to the, the place, they know that they will find something and to bring the, the group with them and then face the group uh, to uh, by by directional choice and you have to binary choice you have to choose between that animal and that animal then the story is that and it is just that I have now to, to think further how, how to design that and to, 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 to make it really efficient and a good demonstration. So I think this paradigm that Dr. Petit is now talking about, um, this, you know, giving different sets of inf information to in different individuals uh, with different characteristics, and in her case, with different social credibility indices, uh, and then allowing them to demonstrate some behavior, which then we expect to kind of diffuse through the group, um, is really taking off. And it's really interesting to think about how much influence different individuals might exert on you know the propagation of this information whether it be information about a food location or novel behaviors or something like that and in a previous uh, podcast that we did with dr dora biro you might remember that she talked about this information spread of information and information use and how it can lead to the development of fads which might not actually be adaptive behaviors but they take off just because some influential individual um, initiated it and so it's really interesting to think about how the social credibility index fi figures into this. And so to end the interview, Dr. Batiste is just going to tell us maybe a little bit about what she hopes to see come of this research in the future and what directions um, she would like her, uh, both for her own team but others as well um, to take this work in. I think such an index, if it works really, um, could be uh, transferred to other species, to another species and to mammal species. You are, we, have not, we are not obliged to stay with primates. And if we do that, perhaps it is just a new line to, 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 to think about that problem of considering different variables separately. Even if you put them in a single model, then they are separated. And it is really to, to, to be able to combine what constitutes an individual. And then normally... You have nearly in, in, in many social species the same parameters that are impacting uh, the, the weight of one animal, the social weight of one animal. And uh, even if you know that dominance uh, is more important in one species or in the other one, you can um, implement 
that variation in your index, in the, in the constriction of your index, that you will have an index. And then comparison, interspecific comparison, intertaxa comparison could be conducted. And I think really that I hope this idea will be used by others. And then we, because we need to, to test it for several purposes. And if it works, I think perhaps it is a new way of considering uh, social status and, and sociality. So that was Dr. Odile Petit from the University of Strasbourg telling us about the Social Credibility Index. So just a reminder that you are listening to the Primate Cast's coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. This is the fifth of five installments from our coverage of that uh, event. And in our next interview, we are joined by Dr. Nicolas Cledier. Uh, he is a postdoctoral researcher at the CNRS, again, in France, but this time at Aix-Marseille University. Now, Nicolas is generally interested in both biological and cultural evolution, and so his research focuses on some of the similarities and differences um, between these two processes, and specifically asks questions such as, do biological and cultural entities evolve in similar ways? So in this interview, he's going to tell us a little bit about this work, and specifically a project he's working on now and presented here in Hanoi um, integrating human and primate cultural evolution. Okay, so what we are trying to do, we're using a computerized system to do some uh, automatic testing uh, of baboons, so we use a simple memory task. Uh, It's a bit like uh, the telephone game, okay? So you you ask someone to say something uh, to somebody else, and then that person has to say something to somebody else again, to say the same thing, what, what he heard. And what you see is that there is a progressive evolution of the content of what is being transmitted through these individuals. And what we've been trying to do with the baboon study is to uh, do a similar study. So to try to give the baboon the opportunity to transmit complex information that could evolve in many different ways. And then the idea is that we can compare this kind of evolution to what we find, for instance, in similar studies in humans. So we're looking at the correspondence between human evolution, uh, cultural evolution, and uh, primate cultural evolution. So if the listeners are anything like me, you're probably right now imagining a circle of baboons sitting next to each other. Um, Nicolas lays into one of the baboons and whispers a secret, and then each of them start going around the circle in turn, whispering into each other's ears. But I don't really think that this is exactly the approach that he's taking or one would take with a troop of baboons. So we asked uh, Nicolas if he could elaborate a little bit on what methodologies they use um, specifically in order to get this, this experiment started. So what, what we did with the computer is every individual in the group has got a microchip in their uh, forearm and they can enter a sort of small testing chamber. They can enter freely these rooms. They can go inside and outside whenever they please. And when they reach through a certain hole in, in the testing chamber, the computer detects which individual is there, and it can start the experiment where that individual previously left off. So we know exactly how many tri- trials each individual has done. And the computer can start at the next trial. So there is no constraints on the group of baboons, or um, there is no direct human training of the baboons to do the experiments. It's all uh, computerized. 
and that gives us uh, a lot of freedom because we can we can do lots of cognitive tests that require a lot of training usually, uh, uh, but that can be readily implemented with this with this sort of new technique that was developed by Joël Fagot in Marseille. So what we do is that we use a network of computers and the system to use the outcome, the product of what one individual is doing, so the the outcome of the memory test, uh, to generate the next stimuli for the next individual. Uh, but so that's similar to take a different example. That's very similar to what you'd find in, uh, I don't know, texting, for instance. So you take your phone and you write something and somebody else receives a text and then from that text they will respond to you. So there is a sort of medium that computer network is um, equivalent to this phone system and what we are asking them is to do a simple task on their computer and transmitting the information indirectly to another individual. So it's not, it's not similar to what you would find in the wild. Of course, baboons in the wild don't have computers and network system and they can't transmit that kind of information. But that tells us a lot about what would happen if they had the opportunity to transmit that kind of information to other individuals. So before finding out whether or not baboons are capable of responding to texts, I just want to back up a step here and give a bit of background context for this. So the talk that Nicolas gave at this conference was called Cumulative Cultural Evolution of Systematically Structured Behavior in a Non-Human Primate. And so basically what's lacking in the social learning cognition um, field, uh, the comparative uh, field, is this idea of whether or not animals are capable of producing cumulative culture. So I guess the idea is kind of this cascade of new ideas building off old ideas, and some of the outcomes could be increased performance over time, as well as the emergence of systematic structure. And so the part that Nicholas is going to focus on here is whether or not in this um, system of baboons performing these tasks with, I guess, the artifacts of previous um, tasks performed by other baboons, in that context, whether there is an emergence of some kind of systematic structure. When we start with uh, random information without any structure in it, uh, so completely arbitrary information, then progressively through this system and this uh, cultural transmission chain procedure, what we see is the emergence of particular structures. So the information doesn't get uh, lost uh, it, it doesn't stay random. It becomes more and more structured and more and more informative. So if you take a measure of entropy, for instance, the entropy decreases very, very sharply uh, in the transmission chains. And that means that the baboons, uh, the cognitive system, is putting the information in, in the outcome, in the product. So the emergence of this systematic structure um, within the behaviors of the baboons is uh, evidence of one of the fundamental components of cumulative culture. But in the paper that Nicolas presented, he was also able to demonstrate a progressive increase in performance over time in these behaviors, uh, another component of cumulative, cumulative culture. And interestingly, and also importantly, the presence of lineage specificity. And so we can think of it in other ways. If we think of human cultures around the world, there's so much diversity that we see. And of course, without that kind of diversity and variation in behaviors that might actually be aimed at you know, serving the same functions within a society, if there is no such variation, then it's more likely this would be a product of biological evolution. So one of the important distinctions between biological and cultural evolution that Nicolas is working with. 
And so to end the interview, Nicolas is going to give us some insights into how these results factor into our understanding of the great divide that we see between human and non-human animal cultural evolution. We know that cultural evolution is a product of biological evolution. So, so sometime, somewhere in our phylogeny, we know that humans develop certain cognitive capacities and that allowed us to, to do everything that we do now, to develop all this material culture that we see every day. And the question is, what happened? I think you know, many cognitive scientists are interested in trying to understand what really happened at that time, why we're so special compared to other animals. And we have seen across the last maybe 15, 20 years so many studies on animal culture and social learning. We know that you know, many species of birds and primates and whales and dolphins are capable of learning quite complex information and transmitting it socially and we're finding more and more um, complex evolutionary process. But there's still this big gap between what we find in animals and what we find in humans. And so what we are trying to do with these studies on social learning and uh, cultural evolution is to get a better understanding of what cognitive capacities are the origin of uh, human culture and human special capacities. So that was Dr. Nicolas Cledier from CNRS in Aix-Marseille University in France talking about cultural evolution. In our next interview, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jörg Massen. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Vienna in the Department of Cognitive Biology. His main interests include social cognition, more specifically cooperation and prosociality, a topic which we have discussed on previous podcasts. And in this interview, he's going to be talking about both the proximate and ultimate explanations for yawning. And so while at first it may not seem to have a lot to do with cognition, uh, social cognition, in fact, there in recent years has been a number of studies that appear to present a link between the contagious yawning and empathy. And so in the beginning of this interview, Dr. Masson is going to be talking about just that and what his research seems to suggest about this link. The theme is basically very broad as to get a better understanding what yawning is and, and why it's contagious. Uh, there have been very various theories about that. Um, however, it is, it, there is still a lot of speculation in these theories and therefore uh, there, there is a need of proper testing and, 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 and that's why I've rolled into this um, I was particularly interested in, in, in the um, a relationship between relationship quality of individuals and contagious yawning uh, at the time I did my dissertation on friendship so I was interested in this this, this um, pattern that, that, that we see but which has been associated with uh, empathy and, and and that is something I do question whether it is empathy related I'm not saying it is not but I'm also uh, but what, what I'm saying is that we first need proof uh, that it actual actually is so I started studying this in so I started to, to really look at the proximate mechanism behind contagious yawning uh, without opening up our animals uh, we c what we can do is we can have a look at the interpersonal uh, characteristics of contagious yawning. And there I did a study on chimps on, um, uh, where I presented uh, the chimps with a, um, basically with a beamer. And the beamer presented then movies of uh, conspecifics of their own group uh, yawning. 
And then the question was, who responded with a yawn? And there we found clear sex differences. That is, that as soon as the individuals in the groups are a male yawning, the probability was very high that they would also yawn. And this in contrast to when they saw a female yawn, um, where, they, where the probability would be much, much lower. And this uh, was especially true for the males. So males, uh, all males responded to the, the, um, to the yawn of another male. Uh, but also in females we saw a difference that females yawn more when they see a male. And uh, I find that a very interesting result, especially um, as in bonobos, they found an opposite pattern, that is, uh, female yawns were more contagious than male yawns. And, um, and as both species have an opposite uh, dominance structure uh, with regard to sex, where in, among chimps the males are more dominant, and among the bonobos the females are more dominant, I, I think this re these two opposite patterns basically reflect the same pattern, which is a rank-related pattern, um, where uh, the, the yawns of high-ranking individuals are more contagious than uh, those of low-ranking um, individuals. And I think this is particularly interesting because... Um, from a proximate perspective, this cannot be easily explained by um, the, the, the empathy theory um, and, might, and, in my opinion, might have to do with uh, biased attention. So interesting result there from Dr. Massen with contagious yawning stemming perhaps not necessarily from other individuals that we uh, empathize with, but perhaps just those that we spend more time paying attention to. So in the next part of the interview, he's going to go on and talk about not the proximate mechanisms of yawning, but the ultimate explanations, the evolutionary reasons for why we yawn, which surprisingly, maybe until even recently, are not that well known. So here's Dr. Massen on that. So yawning has long been uh, thought to uh, help to get more oxygen. Uh, that's, uh, it's basically folk knowledge. Uh, has been for ages. Until, I think in the 80s, somebody actually tested whether you uh, get more oxygen when you yawn in comparison to normal breathing, and there was basically no difference. So, you might do it to get more air, but you don't get more air. So, it seemed not to explain the function of yawning, and, and thereafter there has been quite some debate, and, uh, but I mean, most results now are pointing in the direction that uh, yawning uh, helps to cool the brain. And mm, this works in, 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 in the sense that the brain temperature is always uh, slightly higher than that of the blood. So the brain um, um, releases energy through the blood flow that goes through the brain. Um, by yawning and where you um, stretch your muscles, you increase this brain flow. Uh, this the same brain flow, of, of blood flow, I mean, uh, the same blood flow goes uh, basically through your uh, um, oral cavities and nasal cavities because it's so close to the brain. Uh, and so this blood exchanges energy again with these cavities. And if you breathe in cool air, you cool your blood. That in turn cools the brain. Um, and as a yawn actually ventilates the whole sinus system, so the whole nasal hole of uh, cavities and the, and the oral cavities, you get cool air everywhere where this blood goes past. So the, 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 this is a very efficient way of, of energy exchange uh, in, a, in an indirect way. So it goes from the, um, from the blood to the, the, the ambient air uh, and from the brain to the blood. But in, in the end, then this yawning might actually work uh, to cool the brain. 
And if that were true, then then what would you expect is that if you use different methods of brain cooling, say a cool pack against your forehead, uh, you would expect people to yawn less. And that has been tested and indeed also been found. People with a cool pack uh, compared to uh, uh, people with a sham pack, so basically a similar pack but which is not cooling, uh, against their forehead were put in the room and they were shown pictures of, of, of yawning people uh, just to trigger yawning because it's difficult to wait for ages before they uh, spontaneously yawn. Um, what you see then is that the people with the cool, uh, cool pack against the forehead yawn uh, significantly less than uh, those with the sham pack. Uh, similarly, so what you would expect is that uh, you you expect a uh, decrease of brain temperature after yawning because if, if it cools the brain, you, sh- you should also see the decrease in, in temperature of the brain. And obviously that is very difficult to, uh, to get to because then you really have to take brain temperatures. But this has been done in, in rats, so they actually had probes in the brain to measure temperature. And uh, what they indeed see then is that there is a decrease, uh, a slight, I mean, this is all a matter of uh, uh, 0.5 to 1 degree differences. I mean, obviously the variation in brain temperature is not 5 degrees or something like that. Uh, but you indeed see um, this decrease in, uh, in temperature after, the, um, after a yawn in, in, in these rats, but it recently has also been tested on humans and there were no brain probes in these humans but they uh, they used heat cameras and uh, heat cameras cannot really uh, show the brain temperature but the around uh, the surrounding areas you can and, and and you might infer from the surrounding areas slightly what the brain temperature is and there they also see that after yawn uh, that these these temperatures decrease and then finally, so you expect also an influence of the ambient temperature. So um, it can only cool the, uh, the brain if the ambient air is also cooler as the brain temperature. And um, what you see indeed is that if the ambient air is really hot, um, people tend to yawn uh, less than when it's at, at a, say, a, a temperature of 20 degrees. Uh, but we studied the other end of the of the um, temperature uh, continuum, and we're wondering whether if it's if the temperature outside is really really cold, uh, whether people would still yawn because that might actually um, turn it the other way around, and that you're putting your brain in a too cold uh, too cold situation, um, and that is obviously also not optimal. Um, and on the other hand, it might also be that if it's really cold outside, you don't really need to cool your brain because it's cold enough outside. Um, and the actual challenge is in keeping your brain hot enough instead of cool enough. And so we went uh, to interview pedestrians on the streets of Vienna, both in summer and in, um, in winter, which were in total 120 pedestrians, 60 for each season. And they they got a questionnaire, a simple questionnaire about some uh, uh, personal characteristics, age, uh, like age, how how much hours they slept, and um, and then they were shown uh, 18 pictures of yawning people just to trigger their yawning behavior. And what we see then is that in in winter, basically, there were some people yawning, but far less than in summer. And summer in in in, in Vienna can be really hot but in general is about uh, 25 degrees and 
putting these two data sets with the really hot summers, in, 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 which was in Tucson, Arizona, um, and the really cold summers in Vienna, and the intermediate temperatures together, we really see that there is this thermal window uh, for, uh, for yawning, which is which is around uh, 20 to 25 degrees. It's basically a curve. So if you go, if you go cold, or the, the, the probability, but also the frequency drops, and if you go uh, at higher degrees, uh, also the probability and, and frequency drops. So fascinating study and results there on the environmental factors that contribute to the probability and frequency of yawning and, and offering us a nice evolutionary explanation for why yawning exists, the function of yawning uh, in animals. Now, although he doesn't get into it in the interview here, what's interesting, during his talk, he was able to link these two um, proximate reason, the, the, the contagious yawning, and this ultimate explanation of yawning by saying that, so if the function of yawning is to regulate brain temperature, and obviously optimal brain temperature should facilitate arousal and attention uh, in all animals, then perhaps the emergence of contagious yawning occurs in the coordination of group vigilance. So we look forward to hearing more about this very topic from Dr. Massen in the future. But it's also interesting to think about why something as common and ubiquitous and everyday and mundane as yawning is not that well understood, uh, especially in the side of um, the contagious yawning, which still needs a lot of work to, to figure out. But yet there are all these ideas, uh, especially again on the contagious yawning side about how yawning factors into empathy. And so just to end this interview, Dr. Masson's going to talk a little bit about some of the fundamental components of kind of understanding um, behaviors, both proximately and ultimately, and the importance of having uh, information coming in both from the field and from the laboratory to generate a synthetic understanding, a more holistic understanding of what's going on here, starting with the behavior itself. First of all, what is really important, I think, is to actually study behavior, uh, to be really careful to infer, um, um, to to make inferences from these behaviors that that cannot be easily tested or, or confirmed uh, by just the behavior. So, we would 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 certainly start off by. Um, by just looking at the behavior and describing it as a behavior and not as a, a, an intention or a, a motivation uh, if you cannot really show that this is the intention or motivation. Uh, secondly, I think it's very important to put uh, any behavior of any animal in its, uh, its socio-ecological background. Uh, so we do a lot of cognitive tests in the lab. Uh, but we always try to uh, translate what we find in the lab uh, to the field and therefore I think field studies are very informative and it also works the other way around you might observe interesting behaviors in the, in the field that, which you, um, of which you suspect that there is a, an, a cognitive, uh, maybe a high cognitive um, uh, mechanism behind it and then the lab allows you to test whether indeed these animals are um, capable of, of these um, of these high cognitive uh, uh, mechanisms, um, and but and it's also in the design of tests that you need to really take care to be to to take the species uh, which you're working with uh, uh, into account. Um, and if you're working with a non-tool using species and you design a test that um, that, that needs the use of a tool. Um, 
and and and, and this, the study question is not on tool use. I mean, and, but if this, uh, then you're you're designing the wrong test because if your study animal then doesn't show the the behavior you uh, you expected to show, you cannot make any proper conclusions because it might be too because they don't know how to use tools. Um, uh, but they might actually understand the paradigm you're presenting them, but they just cannot. Um, figure it out because they need to use tools. So you really need to take the, the, the socio-ecological um, um, background of your animals into account. And I think this is also very important for hypotheses about uh, the um, uh, evolution of, uh, of behavior. And with, and with regard to the evolution of behaviors, I, it's, it, I, I think there is an interplay between the socio-ecological background of your animal and its Um, it's 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 lineage from, uh, from where it stems from, and therefore I think it's very important not to uh, not to just look within one lineage, say just just primates, uh, because if you find it in, among a, a lot of primate species, uh, you're not sure whether it's a socio-ecological background or it's common ancestry, um, and therefore it's interesting to look at other uh, mammal species, but um, but not just mammals. You might even Uh, broader your um, horizon and look at birds, fish, I don't know uh, what. And then look for sim species with similar socio-ecological systems. Um, I mean, you don't find a species that has a similar socio-ecological system. I mean, these, these, the variation among in socio-ecological systems is humongous, but as similar as possible, to and, and which, which might indicate uh, why some uh, behaviors evolved or not. And, and if you then find it in both lineages, then you can truly say that this socio-ecological uh, environment uh, has been a selection pressure for a certain behavior to evolve. So that was Dr. Jorg Massen of the University of Vienna talking about the evolution of yawning. Now, just to follow up on a final point here, he mentioned in the end of the interview um, the need for comparative work and a broader perspective on the evolution of behaviors. And so with specifically this idea of contagious yawning, we know that in humans it's quite common, but it's also common for dogs uh, and humans to share contagious yawns. And this is, extends also into chimpanzees uh, and a few other species that have, have been investigated. But one interesting species that has also been investigated but showed a negative uh, result meaning a lack of contagious yawning, was the red-footed tortoise. And so that garnered the researchers an Ig Nobel Award a couple of years ago for their 2011 study. And it's kind of interesting that the researchers were also affiliated um, with the University of Lincoln, but also the University of Vienna's Department of Cognitive Biology, where Dr. Massen uh, now works. So small world there. Once again, you are listening to the Primate Cast coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. Now we're coming to the final interview of this podcast and the final interview of this series of podcasts from IPS 2014. So next you're going to hear from Dr. Joshua Plotnik. He's lecturer in conservation biology at Mahidol University in Thailand. And he's also founder and CEO of an American NGO called Think Elephants International. Now, Josh is generally or broadly interested in comparative cognition and in his case, convergent evolution of cognitive abilities in, in animals. And this is exemplified by his studies of elephant cognition. And so in this interview, Josh is going to talk about how 
Understanding more about the behavior and cognitive abilities of these animals can really be used to inform conservation and management strategies to help mitigate some of the conflicts that occur uh, mainly between humans uh, and elephants, especially in the context of greater and greater uh, interface between those species. And so this really fits in well with his uh, other work as uh, CEO of Think Elephants International, which is really focused on conservation of elephants and bringing awareness and also educating um, people both in the West and in the East, an important component of, of his work, about the issues surrounding elephant conservation and how we can think uh, our ways into better solutions. So I'm just going to let this interview play actually from start to finish because I think Josh does a great job uh, explaining what he does, why he does it, and uh, where he hopes things go in the future. So here's Joshua Plotnick. Yeah, so um, my body of research is actually focused on two completely different areas. One is generally focused in the study of convergent cognitive evolution, um, which is a complex term that pretty much means studying the evolution of intelligence um, in unrelated taxa. So looking at non-human primates, typically psychologists are interested um, or comparative psychologists are interested in looking at non-human primates, the great apes, um, other monkey species to get a better understanding of the evolution of human behavior because these are our closest living relatives. These are the species we can look to to better understand why humans behave and think the way that they do. Um, and there's an evolutionary genetic connection there. But there are other species um, like Elephants, dolphins, corvids, um, corvidae, the family of birds that includes rooks, ravids, magpies, and other species like crows. Um, and these are species that are evolutionarily quite distant from the great apes and humans, but seem to show remarkably similar physical and social cognition in the wild. And so the question is, well, why? Um, it's very unlikely they came from the same common ancestor that shared these traits. It's much more likely that they evolved in... Um, we think, a social environment that required similar social intelligence um, or potentially physical intelligence. So that's one area. The other area that we've gotten into recently is looking at how we can link the study of intelligence to conservation. Um, in particular, elephants are a pretty seriously endangered animal, um, and elephants are my focal species. Um, and if you look at countries like Thailand, um, Vietnam, where there are only a handful of elephants left, um, Sri Lanka and India, the biggest problem facing these animals besides poaching is human-elephant conflict. The fact that there is not enough land for these animals to live and they're encroaching on human property and they're raiding crops, people are getting killed, elephants are getting killed. And a real lack of understanding of the behavior of these animals is what's preventing us from solving these, these conservation issues. So one approach from us is to kind of better understand how they think about their physical environments, how they process sensory information and how we might utilize this information to come up with better mitigation techniques for the wild animals. So our focus in convergent cognitive evolution um, recently has looked at both social and physical cognition. Um, one of the first studies I ever did as a grad student was looking at whether or not elephants could recognize themselves in a mirror. Pretty simple task to perform, but a very rare capacity in the animal kingdom. The only species to have ever demonstrated it thus far are the great apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangs, um, one species of corvid, a magpie, um, dolphins, and elephants. And what's interesting about this unique group of animals, this small group of animals, um, is that they tend to be regarded as among the, put this in quotes, cognitive elite. 
um, this group of animals that seems to show the most complex forms of intelligence, both in terms of their social behavior and also their tool use and other um, things. And we think maybe that demonstration of mere self-recognition is a demonstration of self-awareness, um, as originally defined by the psychologist Gordon Gallup, and that this mirror self-recognition, self-awareness demonstration is linked to empathy. And so these more socially tuned-in animals um, are the ones that are able to demonstrate this capacity. That took me into other areas, looking at cooperation. Elephants live in really complex social groups. Um, I say complex. They actually live in, in close-knit family groups, but they can, they can grow very large. Um, and there are demonstrations of targeted helping, so elephants helping each other in need, um, anecdotal evidence of empathy in elephants. And so this is a very intelligent animal that really has received very little attention from psychologists. And so um, I got lucky, um, started working with elephants as a grad student, and have now set up a field site in northern Thailand looking at, at elephant behavior. Um, I started the nonprofit Think Elephants International um, two or three years ago, in about 2011, 2012. And the purpose of this nonprofit was to find a way to get younger people interested not only in the study of comparative cognition and animal behavior, but also find ways to engage young people both in the West and in the East um, in scientific research, particularly animal behavior research. So can we get young kids interested in animal behavior research, and can we use the study of animal behavior to benefit conservation through education. So that was Dr. Joshua Plotnik of Mahirol University in Thailand talking about cognition and conservation of elephants. And for anyone who's interested, you can go back to the podcast, um, the primate cast number 24, I believe it was, when we interviewed Dr. Raman Sukumar uh, about Asian elephants, particularly um, in relation to their human elephant conflicts in India. And so some of the topics we just spoke about with Josh were are overlapped in this interview as well. So please do have a listen to that. So I'd like to thank all the guests that appeared on this podcast and the others that appeared in this entire series of podcasts of our coverage from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held between August 11th and 16th, uh, 2014 in Hanoi, Vietnam. I really hope we continue to be able to roll out the mobile podcasting unit to future IPS events and other um, primatological events as well. We already have a deal with Dr. Steve Ross to set up a booth in Chicago for the 2016 conference. So look for us there. And of course, many, many more things in between then and now. So until the next podcast. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primate cast.